You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, it's great to see you today. I feel like I've kind of like lost my voice <laughs> halfway at least. Could you finish this sentence for me? Okay, it's not going to come up here. Jesus loves me, this I know. There you go. Everyone knows that. Brilliant. Um, If that's the only way that that a person knows that, that Jesus loves them, then I think perhaps the statement is not effectively true. If, if they only know because they've read it on a page, for that person can kind of go, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before, I went to Sunday school, I know. So there's a difference between knowing that the Bible tells me so and knowing that God has planted something as truth in my heart. So how do I balance what I believe the Bible says about things like abundant life? and uh, God's love for me with the world that I physically see? How do I balance those two? How do I reconcile those two things? The, the world that I experience, how do I balance that? There's tension and anxiety. There, there, there's danger and insecurity. There's loss and there's grief and there's tears and there's illness and there's injury and there's famine and there's poverty. And the list goes on and on. How do I reconcile this love of God with that. I need something deeper and firmer than the Bible tells me so, as a statement. Now, bear with me. I'm not saying that the Bible's not trustable. The Bible is completely trustable, absolutely. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It's infallible. It is without error, 100%. So am I saying that the Bible is not enough No, I'm not, and yes, I am. Now, don't stone me just yet. (laughs) Just bear with me on this one. Am I saying that the Bible is not enough? No, I'm not, and yes, I am. Because the Bible is finished. It's a finished word of God. It is there, nothing added to it, nothing to take away from it. We cannot pollute it, dilute it, you know, execute it in any other way. So what do I mean? Let me explain. To say it's in the Bible is not a statement of faith. It's a statement of academic knowledge. Professors, atheist professors could tell you that the Bible tells you that Jesus loves you, and the Bible tells me so. But there's a difference between that academic knowledge and the the effective faith that needs to be activated in our hearts. And, And this needs to be activated by two keys. The first key is by revelation. that The Holy Spirit illuminates what is on the page. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes, takes what is the inspired and perfect word of God and breathes life into it, into our hearts. Or rather, breathes life through it into our hearts. He gives us understanding supernaturally. You can academically understand the gospel and not know Jesus. You could write pages and pages on Christianity and never meet with a risen king. So the Holy Spirit does what's beyond our capacity to understand and, uh, and beyond our experience and beyond our circumstances and the Holy Spirit goes further, deeper, more. Uh, and the second key after revelation is faith. By faith, 
In other words, we take the revelation and we act upon it. Those are the two keys to make sure that when we say, Jesus loves me, we're not just saying yes because the words in black and white on this page tell me that, but because the Spirit has revealed it to me, made it real in my life, and as a result, I have acted upon it, and that is by faith. James says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Who does that? I don't. I think about how I look at all day. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'll just tell you this. This is just a quick aside. You know, I'll, I'll erase this from the podcast. But the other day, I was going to shave. Jess is looking at me. She gets nervous when I go off script. <laughs> probably with good reason. I, I was going to shave on Friday because I was speaking uh, in front of a load of pastors yesterday and so I thought I should probably make an effort. So I was going to shave and, and then I, I noticed as I was about to shave that this almighty spot just appeared on my chin. I'm going to call him Bruce because he was big enough to be named and I thought I'm not shaving because at the minute my beard is hiding Bruce. <laughs> so I don't want Bruce to be made known so that's why I'm looking scrappy today. But we think about what we look like. So, but to, to say, I'm going to apply something in faith and then walk away from it and forget all about it is like looking at your face in a mirror and forgetting it. So what does the word of God have for you when you're feeling lonely? When your marriage is in trouble? What does the word of God have for you? What does the word of God have for you when you're frightened? What does it have for you when you feel threatened? What, what does it have for you when you're insecure or you feel unpopular or you feel unloved or guilty or full of regret and shame? What does the Bible have for you? What does the Bible have for you when you lose your parents? What does the Bible have for you when you lose your kids, when you lose your spouse? What does the Bible have for you when you lose your job? If it's just words on a page, it has nothing for you. We need the Holy Spirit. What do you do when you can't see the end of the trial? When you can't see the wood for the trees? When you can't see the light from the grey? What do you do when you feel you're barely holding on? We need the Holy Spirit to bring that revelation daily. And then we need to activate that revelation by faith. In faith. Act upon it. To, to firmly place our dependency upon it, that's what we need to do. So I'm just going to pray. Lord, I, I just pray that today you would activate something in our hearts that helps us to know that the strength and the, the might and the supremacy and the sufficiency of the love of God that is at work in our hearts through Jesus Christ. I pray that your word this morning will resonate and that you would even cause faith to arise in our hearts because we need the revelation from your Holy Spirit this morning, not from me, not from academia, but your spirit, Lord also, increase our faith so that we may act upon what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Psalm 94, and it's going to come up here. I'm only going to share three verses with you this week. Verse, the first verse, this is verse 17. Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. That's pretty dramatic. If God hadn't helped me, I'd have been facing death in silence, alone. When I said, my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Amen. 
I want to spend a, a, just a little bit of time, if you'll permit me, dissecting this this morning. I, I think we need to understand something within our capacity of the measure uh, and the effect of his love. And I say within our capacity because we, we cannot put parameters of words, however majestic those words are, around God's love to describe it. It's boundless. So the first thing I want to look at is this, when I said my foot is slipping. When I said my foot is slipping. Firstly, it's in the past tense. When I said my foot is slipping. Perhaps it could be better understood as this. On the occasions that I have said, on the occasions that I've said my foot is slipping, your love sustains me. So the writer is reflecting on events that are past tense. They're quantifiable. They've, he's experienced them. He knows what he's talking about here because he's lived that. And it's precisely because of this, precisely because it's in his past tense, that for us, it becomes a comfort in our present and future tenses. Because he knows, and he's passing that on to you. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me, sustained me, upheld me. So we can take that as sure in our own lives. That the writer is attesting to something that he has experienced, that he knows to be true and certain. When I said, my foot is slipping, your love was faithful. Isn't there a sense of certainty in the when? Uh, and just to digress here briefly, this is important that you understand the when, because it also means for us a future thing. Because he's saying, when in the past I have said this, but for us, like in Isaiah 43, when you face the waters, and when you go through the rivers, and when you walk through the fire, it's not if. That's what you need to know today. And that's not good news right now. I appreciate that. <laughs> when you face trials of various kinds, God wants you to know that you will unavoidably have times that you feel this way and when circumstances are this way in our lives. And I think God wants us to not be of the unrealistic mindset that all should be blissful and in order and pain-free in the here and now. We should expect the when. And Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. In fact, as we press into God, don't be surprised if these things increase in our lives. And that sounds like a good plan to walk out the back door and say, well, this isn't for me then. Because why would I throw myself in the firing line? But what we're going to see is that the support from God is so invaluable that you can't live without it anyway. The next thing is I. When I said, it's me, my thoughts. He's, he's self-reflecting, he's introspective here. When I said, it's my perception of things, it's my appraisal of the situation. I say this because I know often my appraisals and perceptions are, are, are wrong. And the devil uses this. I don't think he always creates it, but he certainly manipulates it because somebody can send me a text and the way I read it sends me into a spin. 
And it was never that in the first place. But you see, my perception of the circumstance is more powerful than the circumstance itself. How I see the world. And so if you are in a trial right now, how you perceive that trial will probably, I say probably, be worse than the actual event going on because it amplifies, because we hate to be hurt and we want to protect ourselves. Now, there are times where there's no amplification needed. Your mind cannot amplify it. Eddie uh, lost a friend yesterday um, in a traffic accident. Uh, a man, a husband, a uh, pilot. That's not a circumstance that your mind amplifies. It's amplified enough. So I'm not saying that, but there are times where we, we perceive something going on and, and it's worse in our heads than the actual reality. And we're praying for Eddie's friend as well. I may feel as though my foot is slipping you know, that, that kind of feeling. But, but God's reality is different. If only I could see it and trust it. God's reality, God's not taken by surprise by anything. Not one thing. However horrendous it is, God's not taken by surprise. He's not reacting to what's going on in the world. He's over it all. And he's over your life as well. So the reality that he sees, which is the real reality, by the way, is, is so much more secure than the worst that our imagination can do in our own perception of reality. Like Peter, we see the waves, we feel the, the force of the wind, the, the spray of the sea on my face, and, and that becomes my reality because it's physical. You can, you can feel water on your feet. You can feel the wind across your face and you can feel the spray. You know that you're in a storm, that you're out of the boat and that you're on the water. You know that physically that's real. But the, the more real reality was that Jesus would not let him go. So I worry and I panic about what may happen or who may think what or who may do what without any fact or reality to back up my fears. That's why the Bible so often says, do not fear. Because what you're doing is you're, you're placing an idol in a way because that thing becomes bigger than God in your view. That's what an idol is, something that becomes bigger than God in your view. And the third thing is that he, when I said, I don't want to linger here too long, but words have power. The words that you speak over yourself has power. Now, Margaret touched on this a little bit last week about words that have been spoken over you. And, and so that's the thing that we're talking about this morning as well. There are words that are spoken over you that are incorrect, that are untrue, that are ungodly. But there's words that you've spoken over yourself as well. And sometimes they're placed there because of things like, I remember, I, I'm, I hate spelling. I'm rubbish at it. Uh, the reason I hate it, because I'm not unacademic, but it panics me, and so I, I, I'm just rubbish at it. I'm really self-conscious about it. And the reason is because when I was writing thank you letters when I was a kid, my mum would stand behind me, and if there was one little mistake, bang, that would be. And I'm not exaggerating the force of that. You're, you're thick. You're stupid. You're not academic. You're not clever like your brothers and sisters. 
We'll have to find you some practical thing to do because you can't do the other stuff. It's a lie spoken over you. And the thing is, I didn't initiate that lie, but my head started telling it to myself. Well, I'm not good enough. I'm not clever. I'm not wise. I'm not sensible. It's a lie. And they have power. And there's a real danger that when I say my foot is slipping, I make it my reality. Like self Fulfilling prophecy. Our words validate our perception of things. And then our perception swamps us. If you're constantly going, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, then you you quite probably will. By the way, failure is an option. In fact, I would say failure is a mandate. (laughs) You have to fail in order to succeed. You have to. If you think everything's always rubbish for you, then you're going to see the world that way. If you think you're always hard done by, overlooked and uh, you know, ignored or whatever, that will become your reality. Even if it's not reality, you will see it so strongly that nobody can break into that with their words of encouragement. So negative speech comes from and leads to a negative mindset, a, a negative outlook, and ultimately away from trust. And this is dangerous at this point. Now, this is also not to say that the opposite is true. If negative words become reality, well, actually, I I just want to challenge this idea of positive confession. Because it's not true. That if I can just say things are good, then they'll become good. That if I can just get my mindset right, everything will be blissful around me. You change your mindset so that you view Jesus. And then when you view Jesus, everything makes more sense and you can trust him for the long haul. You know, what we're not talking, I've seen people that will say, I've not got the flu, I've not got the flu, I've not got the flu, I'm not going to speak that over myself. But your nose is running, you've got a fever, you're about to fall over, you've got the flu. Don't be daft and saying, I haven't got the flu, I'm not speaking that into being. Rubbish, it's in being. It's plainly being right now. And saying it's not so is not going to make it not so. So the opposite isn't true, that we can just speak positive things. I know there's not one person in this room that has not felt that at some point in their lives. Quite possibly a number of you feeling it right this very moment in time. Your jacket is on a shugly nail. <laughs> I said in my poshest accent, excuse me, your jacket is on a shugly nail. <laughs> Margaret, can you say it for me, please? Brilliant. Spoken like a native. There we are. We've all faced times where we feel insecure and unbalanced and on edge because of our circumstances or our feelings. And it doesn't even have to be real. It can be perceived peril, perceived pain, perceived danger. And we feel uneven, uncertain and precarious. The perception is of a lack of security. And this can be external or internal in its factors that lead to it. Sometimes we may feel that the ground that we're on is shaky because outside circumstances, perhaps concerning what people have said or done or may do or what we assume others are thinking of us, we can feel like we're on shaky ground. But we can also feel that we're on shaky ground because we're concerned about our own behavior, because we're concerned about our own guilt. So we feel like we're on shaky ground. What, what did the writer of the psalm mean when he said, my foot is slipping? I, I think in the psalm, and you'll look at this in your go deeper notes, 
and in home groups this week, but I think in the psalm he's mostly talking about when, God, are you going to do something about wickedness and arrogance in this world? When are you going to deal with this stuff and, and sort it out because it's perilous to us? And, and he actually goes on to say that this has led to some anxiety. And I think his anxiety is in his own position, not necessarily with what surrounds him. When I said, my foot is slipping, and then the next thing, when anxiety was great within me. So he, he puts the two things together. His anxiety is that his foot is slipping. Not that somebody's attacking him. That's a different language. He's not saying that there are psalms that talk about being trapped, feeling ensnared. He's not talking about that. He's saying, when I feel that my ground is shaky, that's what induces anxiety in me. So was he anxious about them or was he anxious about the fact that he might be numbered with them when God does something about them? Maybe he's got in his head Isaiah saying there is none that is righteous, not even one. And he knows that as he's talking about the wicked and the arrogant, he knows that he's in that pen as well. Maybe that's it. Again, we'll chuck that to discussions in home groups this week. But Deuteronomy 32, 35 says this, and listen to the similarity. Deuteronomy 32, 35. It is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Do you see that? God's saying that. In due time, their foot will slip. And here is the psalmist saying, when I feel my foot is slipping. So he, I think he considers himself in that number and saying, what can I do? This anxiety is because of my own behavior. Yet, at the same time, he's confident that he is supported, upheld, sustained. Why? What's the basis of his confidence? The basis of his confidence is that he's supported by unfailing love. That he can fully trust in the certainty and the strength of God's love for him. That everything that he has experienced, he, he can see the love of God in action. If he falls, God is there to catch him every time, without fail. Now, how many of you have seen this video? And we're just, it'll be an exercise in building trust between one another. So, Harrison, if you don't mind going first, uh, step up here on this chair and close your eyes. Alright, you know what's coming, right? Everybody fill in and we're gonna ask you to fall and then they will catch you. So you have to trust us. I'm gonna count to three. Just relax and fall. Okay? One, two, three. No way! No no! <laughs> For the podcast, he fell forward. You can find that on, on YouTube. It's brilliant. Genius. You know, God's love is not like that. That's not how God's love operates, that he gets you to stand up and get ready. Trust me, trust me, trust me. I'm not there when you catch me. That's not God's love. Whichever way you fall, his love will sustain you. Every time you can depend upon his support, sustain, uphold, protect, fights for, as we've just sung. It's unfailing, it's dependable, it's certain, it's surefire without error and always present. Now, briefly as I come to wrap up, I want to give you eight reasons that his love, or eight ways that his love supports or sustains us. Firstly, it meets me where I am, okay? In my sin, in other words. 
like the prodigal father who meets us on the road as we're coming home, doesn't wait for us to get back and come before him. It says, come just as you are. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he makes the first move. That's the first thing his love does, is it meets me where I am, makes the first move. Secondly, it pays for my sin. It pays for my sin. His, his love doesn't just excuse our behavior. His love doesn't just, like, it's, it doesn't compel him to just look the other way. Pretend that we aren't behaving the way we're behaving. Pretend that everything's okay and ignore our sin. His love pays for our sin. It's, it's, his love is behind the fact that he sacrificially dealt with our sin. Uh, he atones for it. He took it upon the shoulders of Jesus. Our sin paid in full. So he redeems me. He pays the price. He settles the debt. He's compelled by his character, his holiness, his glory, and his love. And it was because he so loved the world that he gave his only son. So Number two, he pays for my sin. Number three, he declares me justified. This is sort of uh, legal language here. He's declared me justified. And you might have heard the old thing, just as if I'd never sinned. There's a bit more to it than that, but he actually declares us righteous. Declares us right with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that's the thing, the key that activates this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. Justified. Number four, he sanctifies me. He doesn't just say, now you're, I'm going to see you as righteous and holy. He makes you that way. And he's doing it. He is changing me when I cannot change myself. Hebrews 9.14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished towards God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? He makes us holy because that brings glory to him. But he's the one doing it, sanctifying us. Number five, he lives for me. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So he lives the life that I can't live for me and gifts it to me. He speaks for me against the accuser. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, that word again, justified. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the God and is also interceding for me. Jesus speaks for me. His love compels him to speak for me. When the accuser, Satan, comes and stands there and pours out accusation about me, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, pouring out like blessing, pouring out justification, pouring out righteousness for me. Number seven, he adopts me, calls me child. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his great pleasure and will. And then that was Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. And then 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what 
we are. So, so far, I've said that his love meets us where we are. It pays for our sin. It declares me justified. It sanctifies me. It lives for me, speaks for me, adopts me and calls me child. And then finally declares me inseparable from it. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is his love overwhelming, as we've sang? Well, we have no words in every single language in the universe Apart from his own, we have no words by which we can describe the measure of his love. Is that overwhelming? Even if every star that God has created carried a name that described his love, there wouldn't be enough stars in the universe. Is it never-ending? I think I've just answered that. Is it reckless? contentious for some people God's not reckless in that he's not trustable but you see the thing that he loved above every other thing is his son beloved son and he gives his son for you is that not just a bit out there (laughs) is that not a powerful it's not just a statement Jesus on the cross isn't just there to say, I love you, world. If, if that's true, if all Jesus did was die on the cross in order to show you how wonderfully God loves you, then that is horrendous. That's like self-harm. To say, it's like me stabbing myself in the leg and going, Jess, I love you. I just want to show you that I love you by stabbing myself. That's how much I love you, Jess. I'm going to stab myself in the leg. No, Jesus went to the cross, not just to show you, even though it does that, not just to show you that, but he shows you it by saying, I'm going to take your sin upon me. That's the action that shows you that I love you. That is the moving factor that demonstrates the love that I have for you, that while you're still a sinner, I'm going to die for you, the ungodly. There's nothing tame about that. And as I close, you will not in all the world, in any of our fortifications, in any of our defense systems, in any of our life support systems, you will never find a greater, more powerful, more effective protector and sustainer and refuge. And in verse 22 of this psalm, he says, but the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. God, we praise you this morning because your love is magnificent. Lord, we could stand and gaze in awe at the glory of who you are and the way that you've poured out your love on us. God, we are so thankful that when our is slipping when it even seems to be slipping. Your love is the thing, the force, the power that is going to sustain us and uphold us and breathe life into us. So God, I pray that by revelation now through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would sink that love deep into our hearts, that we would be aware of it, not just academically, but at a heart level, that we would encourage ourselves this morning in your love, knowing, oh love, that wilt not let me go give you glory and honor and thank you 
that weak as we are and sinners as we've been, your love has fought for us. It has left the 99 to hunt down the one and bring us back in. God, I thank you for that. Give you glory in Jesus' name.